0: Good good morning, church. Um, After an introduction like that, I can't wait to hear what I have to say. (laughs) Um, I think everything, just about everything was covered there. Um, I have to speak a little just to get you used to my voice because um, I know it gets difficult sometimes for um, people on this side of the pond, not for everyone. Uh, I I know that I met someone here who will have no difficulty at all following me. So um, with that, let me um, uh, begin, and I want to begin really with um, the first slide, um, my, my, my first slide, which is this. I want you to look and John said that it was a very smart audience. So I want you to look very carefully at what um, is presented there, and I'm going to think about it. Perhaps, you would notice a couple of errors. And when we see things like this, what comes to our mind, at least what comes to my mind, is basically, you had one job. (laughs) You had one job. You had one job, and this is how it turns out. And I, it's, I know it's critical, it's harsh, and I'm sorry uh, to do that. Like, you never know what people are going through, what, what, what they go through each day, and what kind of pressures they have on them to cause something like that. Um, but they still had one job. And I want to catch on to that idea because as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we have one job. We too have one job. And that one job is to be conformed into the image of Christ. That is our one job. That's the one task. That's all we've been given to do. Be conformed daily into the image of Christ or to see Christ eye to eye, as it has also been phrased. So for today, I want to take a look, as um, even that fantastic introduction suggested, we're going to take a look at the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, and I'm going to split up what I have Uh, to say in five parts. I want to look at something called scriptural authority, try and define it. And after that, I want to look at Jesus's view of scripture. Then I want to talk about the challenges to scriptural authority. Then I want to give a personal view as to why I hold to scriptural authority. And then at the end, if there's time that I should be able to say a few words about the practical implications of accepting scriptural authority. That's five things, and I think I should be able to fit it into the two hours allotted to me right now. That was an old preacher's trick. Let's see who's um, paying attention. Um, So I'm going to begin with the question of what is um, authority? What is scriptural authority? And to that, um, the basic idea is that we accept the words of Scripture as though they were the words of God Himself. And that to disobey what we have in Scripture, the 66 books of our Bible, is to disobey God Himself. That, in a nutshell, is what we talk about when we call scriptural authority. And this is based on a number of things for us in the Protestant church, um, certainly um, not least is 2 Tim 3:16. 2 Timothy 3:16, Paul's letter to a, uh, a younger pastor, and these are some of the words that Paul imparted to him to try and encourage him, uh, and uh, uh, lead him, and help him to be able to lead his congregation. And it basically says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. And if you just want to latch on to that one phrase, it says, breathed by God. Theopneutos in the Greek, very special word, because it literally means breathed by God, which means spoken out by God. All scripture, that's how Paul viewed the scriptures, breathed out and spoken by God. We read also another text, Second Peter three fifteen sixteen, and in that text, which is a, a beautiful text, when you when 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 you take a look at what's going on, um, Peter says, "And count the patience of our Lord and as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, it's the same Paul of Scripture, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters." There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. This is remarkable because Peter obviously finds the writing of Paul difficult. So should we, I think, and we tackle them and it's difficult to wrestle with them sometimes. But the important point here is that Peter calls Paul's writing as the other scriptures, and the term here for scriptures is the term here for God's Word, the Old Testament as well. So even at the time of Peter, what we have here is that the New Testament letters were being formed, as being seen as being holy and being inspired and being God-breathed, written by God. And later on, we find that the church fathers recognize this, and I have to jump forward to Athanasius. In three sixty seven, uh, the the bishop of um, um, bishop of Alexandria, I think it was, he he, in his festal letter. He is the person responsible for crystallizing the 66 books that we have in Scripture today. And he used, not, it wasn't just him, and other people as well, other, of more of the church fathers, they came together and they had various proofs, they had various ways of testing as to whether it should be included as holy writ or not. Things like text had to be written by prophets or apostles which is a big deal. They also had to be confirmed, or they have to confirm a truth of God. And perhaps more importantly, one of the things they had to do was they had to be accepted already by the community. So even though Athanasius actually kind of like puts a seal on what the 66 books are, they were already accepted in the Christian community. Now, some of you may come from a Catholic background, And if so, you are going to be saying, well, what about the books of the Apocrypha? Well, the books of the Apocrypha, such as Maccabees, Judith, Bell and the Dragon, I don't know if you're familiar with these books or not, but these books... Um, have been included in the Catholic Bible, and these books were seen from a very, a very early on stage, even before the days of Athanasius. They were seen as being uh, good for reading, edifying, but not holy Scripture. And the main reason was that the um, they couldn't, they didn't fall quite within that category of being spoken and written by apostles or prophets. And because of that, they were separated. Um, into a a small book, and they're included in the Catholic canon, but not in the Protestant canon, at least not officially in the Protestant canon. But I will um, quickly mention that the 1611 King James Version of the Bible did include the Apocrypha, even if what we have does not today. So that basically explains what scriptural authority is, and what we believe, and what we accept. And so now the question uh, concerns Jesus's view of scriptural authority, and for that, one we'll need to turn to um, Matthew three sixteen through to four eleven. Um, yes, I think we have it up. Great. Yes, I just want to make sure I'm reading from the same from the same version, which I'm probably not um, actually. Um, anyway, from verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city, And had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, Again, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came to minister to him. You'll have noticed straight away that I've broken the boundaries and I've read through chapter 3 into 4. This is sacrilegious, I know. But let me just explain. These divisions that we have in the Bible are relatively new. Um, They date, the chapters go from about 11th, 12th century and the verses about the 15th century. So before that, in the days of the 1st century, 2nd century, days of... um, uh, the apostles, the days of Jesus, there were no chapter divisions. So Jesus never saw chapter divisions. And so trying to be like Jesus, I didn't want to see them either. So I went straight through them. But that's okay. Thank you. Uh, but that's okay. Um, so in this passage, um, basically what we see is that Jesus is, um, he, he does two things that I actually really want to point out. One of them is that he commits himself to Scripture. He commits his life to Scripture by being obedient to it. Satan comes with a challenge. Jesus doesn't just say the Scripture, but he does it as well. He understands man does not live by bread alone, and he is obedient to that because he's fasting out in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. He is being tempted in this way, and he subjects himself to Scripture in this way. Something else that Jesus does in this passage, which is really remarkable, is that he actually enacts Scripture, and not many people really see this, and this is why I wanted this verse division, because we see at least four actions taking place. Jesus is declared as God's Son— he is baptized, he goes through the waters of baptism. He is led by the Spirit into the desert. And then he is tested with bread and with food when he is in the desert. These four things Jesus does, and there are more of them, but these are the four things that the nation of Israel does. They are declared as God's own son in Exodus 4.11. They pass through the Sea of Reeds, like the baptism of Jesus. They are led out into the desert, not for 40 days, but it ends up being 40 years. And they are tested with bread and tested with manna. This is not an accident. Jesus is living scripture. He is embodying his people and he is going through their journey. And it is no coincidence that after Jesus finishes here, he goes up on a mountain in order to give the law to his people in the same way that the Israelites went to Mount Sinai to receive the laws from God. Jesus does not only obey, but he embodies scripture itself. That is his view of the written text. And this brings me to the question of the challenges which there are to Scripture, which you may have heard and some of you may indeed um, hold some of these views as well and there are basically three challenges in my classes I teach a, a wonderful class I don't mean to advertise um, Alliance University but I'll advertise Alliance University a great school um, we, lots of a range of classes and one of the classes which I teach in which this comes up a lot is the text of the Old Testament and in it um, we talk about some of the challenges and one of the challenges that people have the scripture concerns the versions. There are many versions of scripture which we call textual pluriformity in, in the trade. Many versions of scripture. How can we trust these things? New American Standard, King James, New King James, NIV, NIV 1984, NIV 2011. We go to the American Standard Version. We go, it goes the message, it goes on and on. How can we trust scripture when there are so many versions? Which one is right? How many times I've heard that in classroom. Which one is right, professor? Concerning the issue of textual pluriformity, I need to go back to 1947, first of all, where some Bedouin shepherds found some texts in the Judean desert. These texts came to be known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, crucially important for, um, for me, for, for scholars, but also they, they do reflect, or they give us a window into life into the first century. One of the things they showed us is that in the days of Jesus, from when many of these scrolls were written and were in use, there were many different versions of the biblical text. Many different versions of the biblical text. Different versions of Jeremiah, different versions of the Psalms, different versions of Isaiah, different versions of Samuel, many different versions. And you know what? Jesus didn't have a problem with it. Jesus didn't have a problem with it. This is not an obstacle to the um, accepting the inspired word of God. The second question, the second challenge, concerns mistakes. Oh, there are so many mistakes in the Bible, I can't trust it. Usually at this point, I say, can you show me which mistakes you mean? To which... I get silent. I'm not denying that there may be some mistakes in the text. And usually what I do, um, you know, let's do it now. Let me have a volunteer. Can I have a volunteer, please? Somebody from the front row. A volunteer, please. Somebody come up. Yes, you, come up. Yes, come up. Come up, a volunteer. You didn't expect that. Come up here, stand on the stage, please. I promise I will not turn her into a rabbit, and she will not disappear. (laughs) Can you stand just over here, please? I am going to show you some instructions, and I just want you to perform them. That's all. That's all. Just perform them. See if you can do that. Go ahead. Okay. Very good. Very good. I chose the right person. Here's another one. Ah, Oh, uh, one more, one more, one more. <laughs> Thank you very much. You may be seated. Thank you very much. That was tremendously well done. What was your name? Michelle, Michelle. Michelle. Thank you very much, Michelle. She helps me greatly. Um, what instructions did I give her to do? Well we can see those up here now. <laughs> there were mistakes in the writing, but the message was perfect. There were mistakes in the writing, but the message was perfect. Scripture is the perfect word and message from God through the hands of men. And we, as you saw in the first slide, make mistakes. That does not obscure the message of Scripture. That is not a reason to reject the text at all. Another objection which we have to Scripture concerns contradictions. Oh, there's so many contradictions in the Scripture. We can't trust it. And I usually say, what contradictions do you mean? And to which, again, there's silence. Well, there are some contradictions in Scripture. I do not necessarily have too much of a problem with this. And here's one that we see. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this in the book of Proverbs. I think I have it. Okay. (laughs) Um, This one, it goes like this. Let me read it out for you. Um, I think I have it here. It says this: it says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to uh, do not answer a fool sorry do not answer a fool according to his folly lest you be like him yourself answer a fool according to his folly lest he be wise in his own eyes so in that text this is from um, the book of Proverbs Proverbs 26 4 to 5 on the one hand it says answer a, te- a fool according to his folly then it says don't answer a fool according to his folly which is a contradiction what do we do two different commands what do we do to address this issue, I can recall what happened what happened to me a uh, month ago, over a month ago, when after dinner, I said to my wife, would you like some coffee? I didn't say to my wife, I said, let me surprise her and I'll make her a cup of coffee. So I, I, I made her a cup of coffee and I gave it to her after dinner and she looked at me, she smiled, she said, thank you very much. And so the next day... I did the same thing after dinner, didn't say anything, went to the kitchen, made a cup of coffee, gave it to her. She said, thank you very much. That made me feel pretty good. So I did it the next day, and it's happened for over a couple of weeks. And I came to one day, made her a cup of coffee, after dinner, gave it to her. She said, no, thank you, I, I don't want that. I said, oh. I didn't expect that. Contradiction in behavior. Dinner, coffee, happy. Dinner, coffee, happy. Dinner, coffee, unhappy. This is a contradiction. We are full of contradictions. Humanity, people, we are full of contradictions. We say one thing one time for one situation, we don't do the same for the other. We shout at one time, and it's good to shout at your child when he's crossing the road, because you don't want him to die, we shout at our child again because he's misbehaving, and it's punishment. We're doing the same thing in different situations, but they are contradictory actions. If Scripture does not have contradictions like this or things that seem to con- conflict, it will never address us as humanity. And if we as human beings have such seemingly difficult contradictions, how much more would God seem to be a contradiction to us? These texts, these situations are crucial for a biblical text to provide us instruction because what it does is it teaches us to depend on God for interpretation as to when to apply one rule and when to apply the other. Just to close up this section, I'm going to say that there is an inherent resistance from humanity to accept authority, an inherent resistance. And this goes back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve wanted to shake off the responsibility of seeking God to know good and evil. They wanted independence. They wanted to do their own thing. They did not want to be controlled by uh, from above. And this is a situation which we have in humanity. We want our independence. We want our freedom. We do not want to come under any kind of authority. And so when you speak to people generally, there is a natural resistance to come under any kind of authority, especially the authority that's found in the word God. Of God, we need to keep that in mind as we speak to individuals as we uh, begin to explain these principles to them. There's the old adage that if you are looking for an excuse, you will find one, and if somebody does not want to accept the authority of scripture, they will find an excuse. But it's not something that I personally have found, and so that leads me to the question as to why I I believe and accept the authority of Scripture. And first and foremost, my reasoning is because Jesus did. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. If he didn't find problems with the text, I can't find problems with the text. If he submitted himself as the son of God, somebody who was present at the creation of the world, if he doesn't find a problem with the text, and he he would have known the text better than anybody... Then I cannot say that I have a problem with the text either. The second reason why I accept the authority of Scripture is because through the lens of Scripture, the world makes sense, the world just makes sense. As I read through the news stories each day, I see stories of war, drought, famine, plague, terrorism, genocide, lies, scams, rape, abuse, you've heard that list before, which were all gleaned from the internet in one day by your pastor, but we see all of these stories And when I see me say, how can this be? And then I listen to voices on the television and the radio, and they speak of a society that seems to be or thinks it is progressing and moving forward to something better. And the approach is given or the attitude is given that if you just give us a little bit more time, we're gonna get this right. We're gonna get society right. We're improving. Through the lens of Scripture, I can turn to places like Jeremiah 17:9. This is a New English translation. The human mind is more deceitful than anything else. It is incurably bad. Who can understand it? Or I can even turn to God's words in Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. That's the world in which I live. That makes sense of this world to me. And that tells me we are not getting better, we are just finding more creative ways of doing evil in this world. Or I can take a personal example And maybe you guys share this same experience. You drive up in the in the car park for work. And as you stop the car, just in the corner of your eye, you see him. You see that guy. You know who I mean, it's that guy. You see that guy that you hate. You just can't stand him. This is the guy that takes he takes the last jam-filled donut and leaves you with the crud, and then he eats it in front of you. You know? And he's got that smile on his face, and it irritates you. And you see that guy pull up the same time as you, and you know in your heart, I should come out of the car, walk up with him, I should talk with him, I should, you know, shower him with love. That's what I should do. And then you see him, and you think of the donut. And then you fold, you go down, pretend you're looking like you're doing something in your bag, let him go away. You don't want to talk about this guy, you move on. And then you get up and you feel guilty. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? We want to do good, we know it, and it becomes a struggle. And then we read Romans eight fifteen to 19, For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Wretched man that I am. It makes sense of me. It makes sense of my behavior. It makes sense of the problem of humanity. And because Scripture, looking at the world through the lens of Scripture makes sense of the 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 evil that is about us and the evil that dwells in me for me it also makes sense that the cure that God gave the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ I can also trust in that to get me through and this brings me to the final part well within two hours but this brings me to the final part. What does it mean to accept the authority of Scripture? And I want to hear first of all raise a problem that we have with, the, with the, in the West, not just in the United States, but I'm going to argue in the United Kingdom as well, and probably most of Europe too. We live in a society, postmodern society, in which We hear words spoken. We process words that are spoken. We see the logic of words that are spoken. And then we agree wholeheartedly with words that are spoken from the pulpit, from the classrooms, in books, in every other place. And this is the worst thing in the world because we don't do anything more. We move on to the next idea for understanding and processing and agreeing, and we don't do anything more. We fill our heads with ideas with which we agree, and that is it. This is not what was going on in the ancient world. Even, I would dare say, if you go and look in the Middle Eastern world, and how they treat a lot of understanding. They make a big distinction between the modern ideas of belief, which I've just described, of understanding a concept that sits in your head, and faith, which means changing your life in agreement with the truth that you have heard. It is the action phase that we tend to lack in this society. The putting things into practice. And so the truth that we read about the Word of God, the nature of the Word of God, the truth that it represents demands an action. If you accept it as the Word of God, it demands an action. Your life should not be the same. There are two actions, first of all, that I want to mention. Um, to really close things up. And the first of those actions is that we must read it. We must read it. We must read Scripture. And I'm not just talking about some of it. I'm talking about the whole thing. You may have heard that it was said, oh, there's no point in reading the whole of the Bible in a year because you will only forget it. This is a fallacy. This is not true. You will be surprised and shocked how much of Scripture you will hold in your mind as you read through it, beginning to end, to understand its content. Some of it you won't. Some of it you might find difficult. I usually recommend at times like this that churches have a a reading pattern throughout the year where they read either... The, the whole of scripture or a third of scripture and complete it in three years and people can support each other in it. You can have a group chat and you can talk when you come to a difficult part of scripture and you can discuss the difficulties, but it's important that you move through the whole of scripture. If it is God's word, it, it, it necessitates this action um, there's the story of um, a friend of mine, somebody I know, called Craig Keener. I don't know if anybody's heard of or knows of Craig Keener. He's an, an author. He, he's uh, an evangelical author, wrote, written a ton of books. But in, he, in a story which he writes, he speaks about when he first um, converted, when he first came to the Lord and accepted Jesus as the Savior. And his night times were spent in Scripture And he read through it cover to cover a number of times in a matter of three or four months. He was just reading it. If this is the word of God, then this is the the, the reaction we have to have to it. We have to read it. We have to understand it. We have to know what is written. What is it that God has spoken to humanity in these words? So that's the first thing that it necessitates, that we read it. The second thing that it necessitates is that we do What it says. We practice Scripture just as Jesus did. Jesus practiced and did what Scripture said. He followed the pattern set out through Scripture. He obeyed. He knew Isaiah 53. He understood the suffering servant. And he understood what he needed to do in order to redeem humanity. So it's not just a question of of reading Scripture, but it's about obeying. And, and, and actually changing your life so if you hear a, a sermon or a teaching on thanksgiving on, on, on giving sorry we're coming up to Thanksgiving now but you hear something about giving or being thankful that's great you would hear it in the pulpit you would read about it you would say hallelujah that's right that's a great that's a great truth but then it is incumbent upon us. To look and see in the week to come, how can we implement that? How can I practice thanksgiving this week? What can I do to express thanksgiving to God above and beyond what I usually do? Scripture must change our lives if we indeed accept it as the written word from God, as the authoritative text. So how can I sum up all of these words that I've spoken this morning and that the band can make itself ready? Well, I can leave it up to the psalmist. Because he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, enabling us to see Jesus eye to eye. Amen.